Now what we want to look at in this session is to see the effect that COVID-19 has had on world affairs in the light of Bible prophecy. And I think we can see that it is helping to move forward God's plan and purpose. And it is obviously part guesswork of what is going to happen, but guided by the scriptures, I'm sure we can see that things are moving exactly as we expected. And through this lockdown, it is going to speed things up. So we are living in unprecedented times. And never in the history of the world has so much of the world been ground to a halt. Um, back in the 3rd of April, it was half of humanity is now on lockdown as 90 countries call for confinement. And just this Friday, Stratfor, the American intelligence site, issued a map listing all those countries which are in major lockdown. It was an amazing spread of nations. Amazing for the fewness of the countries. So there was Nicaragua, isn't under lockdown, Sweden, Belarus, Turkmenistan, uh, Singapore, South Korea. Uh, and those are the only countries which are not under major lockdown. And we have to remember, brothers and sisters, although we might be chafing under the regulations we have here, for our brothers and sisters living especially in Africa, where there is no government help, so no job means no income, uh, no food, crops are being neglected, and they also are facing not just a pandemic, but also plagues. There is a big plague of locusts. There was this bad one last year. And the second wave, which they're expecting now, uh, is said to be 20 times worse. So it's problem after problem for many of our brothers and sisters. And we must remember them in our prayers. And then coupled with that, there is also an uptick in the number of earthquakes. Uh, in America, there's uh, many earthquakes uh, are coming to life again. Um, this one in Idaho was the second strongest ever that's been recorded. And then this one in Zagreb, the largest earthquake in 140 years. So we're seeing an uptick in the strength and the quantity of earthquakes. And then on top of that, the uh, eruptions from volcanoes, again, is uh, increasing. Uh, there's a report from Iceland that uh, the last active period started in the 10th century and lasted 300 years. We've now gone 700 years and suddenly it's come to life again and um, throwing lava up into the air. And just uh, uh, end of last week uh, in Japan, one of their volcanoes has erupted again and these huge ash plumes are being shot 11,000 feet into the air, again causing great disruptions. So what we want to look at is to see how these changes are going to speed up 
God's plan and purpose. And the interesting thing is that God achieves so much uh, from just one action. And we can think in the past, and I just plucked one example of when David numbered the people, uh, there was the big plague that followed, uh, and that was punishment on Israel for their treatment of David in the time of Absalom. But it also revealed the site of the temple where David offered his uh, sacrifices. God said, well, this is where the temple is going to be. And it was also a punishment for the way David had handled the number. And so and God achieves so much uh, through one action. So let's have a look, first of all, at Brexit. It's a word we've dropped out of the vocabulary, hasn't it, for the last uh, few months? But uh, we know that Britain left the EU as uh, no longer a member. And so there's a picture of a picture in Brussels of the Union Jack being removed from the other 27 flags of the other members there. So that, that has taken place. Um, what is now looming on the horizon is the end of the year, 31st of December, when Britain leaves economically. At the moment, she continues her membership as it always has been. And uh, that will end on the 31st of December. And then from there on, any new agreements that have been agreed during this year will be set in motion. And those are the things that are now being discussed. And one of the interesting things was that on the 2nd of February, uh, the UK resumed her seat, which she'd had in the past, on the World Trade Organization. For the past 40 odd years, while she's been a member, it has been the EU that has represented Britain. Now, once again, she has her own voice in the World Trade Organization, which is uh, an important thing because this is what Britain very likely is going to end up with. Uh, not an agreement with the EU of any detail and therefore will fall back on World Trade Organization rules. And so to have a strong voice in the organization of that organization uh, is important. So one of the big contentions is fish. Uh, and on Friday, Marco Barnier, who is the EU chief negotiator, warned that uh, the EU is not going to sign a trade deal with the uh, UK unless Boris comes up with some long-term deal so that the European fishermen can continue to plunder the British uh, fishing grounds, which when Britain became a member, uh, became common grounds and it was the EU who decided how much fish Britain could take from her own grounds and she wasn't allowed much and countries like uh, Holland and France uh, gained very much from the EU fishery policy. Now Britain has said well now we have left, uh, if fisheries when we come to the end of the year they'll be under our control and will dictate who can has, have fish and will do it on a sustainable basis because it's the big uh, EU fishing vessels that hoover up the fish in vast quantities 
are causing uh, great shortages, depleting the stocks that are there. So this is an important um, thing for the EU. They're insisting they want a good share of Britain's fish. And Britain is determined, no, we're going to have a main share. So we can see a big stumbling block there. And uh, there was a report earlier in March um, that France has said if we can't have access to the British fish, then we'll blockade the ports. So uh, Calais and could spread to Rotterdam and Zeebrugge. Uh, and that, of course, will paralyze any trade between Britain and the EU by um, ship or by uh, ferry lorries going on the ferries. So we can see that there's not a lot of love lost between Britain and the EU and uh, this can be a big cause of rupture between the two. And we, we can see that this is what God intends. Uh, he doesn't want Britain to have deals with the EU, wants Britain to break away from the EU, form her partnerships with the Commonwealth countries in America and turn her back on uh, Europe, which is going to increasingly be hostile to Israel, whereas we know Britain is a friend of Israel. So because of the virus, the talks have been um, very difficult because uh, Barnier himself, as well as Johnson and other negotiators, uh, have caught the virus and so have been out of action for some time. It's only just recently that the talks have recommenced. And uh, Barnier gave a summary again this Friday, um, insisting that he demands that if there's going to be any agreement between Britain and the EU, that there has to be a level playing field between them. And Britain has said, well, now we're not a member. We're negotiating this from a position of sovereign equals. And Barnier says, no, that's not the case. We've got a population of 450 million. You've only got 66 million. We're the most important and it has to be on our terms. So again, you can see this growing conflict between the two sides. And again, the EU is insisting that uh, the UK recognise the European Court of Justice, which uh, Britain very strongly opposes. And also the EU is saying that any agreement involves Britain uh, adhering to the European Convention on Human Rights, which again is a very godless document um, and Britain wants to steer well clear of it. Uh, Britain is looking to make individual little agreements on uh, transport, on aviation, on this and that, whereas the EU is saying no, we want one major uh, framework for an agreement. So clearly pulls apart. There's uh, a deadline coming up at the end of June. Britain uh, has to decide whether to extend the negotiating deadline of the end of the year. Um, Johnson has made it quite clear that no is not going to extend. If they can't get an agreement by the end of the year, well, that's it. So I'll just go on world trade terms. 
and again, we can see this hand of God just bring at this particular time the virus disrupting all governments um, by concentrating on looking after their uh, peoples uh, and so not so much attention to negotiations. It, it will all lead to this separation with Britain having the minimum ties to the EU, I believe. EU were very cheeky on the night that Britain left on the 31st of December of January this year. Uh, she presented Britain with an extra bill. We know that Britain has to spend vast sums of money contributing to the coffers of the EU. And so um, they did a recalculation because Britain had had a good year. The previous year, they calculated that uh, Britain should be paying even more money in. And so there was presented uh, a bill for another billion uh, pounds uh, contribution that Britain had to make. Now, whether Britain has paid that or not, I don't know. I haven't been able to get any news on that, but that was their parting shot just to celebrate Britain leaving. Uh, we're upping the bill. Um, how typical of the EU. And of course, they're now in a, a very tricky situation. They're trying to negotiate the budget for the next seven years from 2021 to 2027. And this is a report last Sunday, um, Riccio. Um, the European Commission president says that, you know, things have got to be different. Um, it is clear, reading part way through, it's clear the EU will be increasing their budget and bringing in all kinds of packages to deal with the consequences of COVID-19 crisis. Paying into this new budget when we are no longer a member state and without a say is clearly not in the national interest. We need to spend our money on our needs in our own way. You see, if Britain did agree to an extension, not only would she have to continue paying uh, was about £12 billion pounds a year into the European budget without having any say, she'd also be involved with all these extra payments which they're now having to uh, take to replace Britain's budget contributions which will come to an end and now all the money that they need to deal with the COVID virus, um, it is clear that there's going to be a big increase in contributions needed. So what this uh, report was saying, well, you know, no point in extending the deadline, let's get out. Uh, we don't want to be coughing vast sums of money into a bankrupt EU. Another interesting uh, article on four reasons why leaving the EU will help us recover from the lockdown quicker. It was um, saying that the main benefit, you know, as long as we can get out somehow, doesn't matter how, but at the end of the year, then we can free ourselves of all the bizarre rules and regulations, which are unhelpful, it says, at the best of times. But in a crisis, it's lethal. We've seen how the EU has been very poor in dealing with the uh, 
crisis with the virus. Uh, number two, we can scrap tariffs and quotas. Uh, food supplies are probably going to be a problem. And um, we can get food cheaper because the EU imposes uh, large tariffs on imported food. So if we're out of the EU, then we can buy food from whatever country can supply it at the best price. So, you know, the quicker we get out, the better. Thirdly, we can save money because of um, the contributions and the EU UK is expected to make a net contribution around 17 billion to the EU this year. And if we extend it, we're similar some next year. And it says finally, uh, a negotiating hand will be stronger over the next few months than it ever will be. So we'll be much stronger once we're out than uh, still part of the EU. So if we want to get the British economy back on stream, let's not extend the deadline. Let's get out when we can, is what it's saying. And uh, another article, again, reflecting the problems with the uh, Eurozone, with the coronavirus uh, problems, um, the debt that Europe, especially Southern Europe, Italy and Spain, Greece and those countries are in is absolutely enormous. And if we Britain remains in the EU, then we'll have to be contributing to bailing them out. And so it says, we must however put as much distance between us and the Eurozone as possible. It would not be wise to be in the same room with an explosion. The period of recovery could be long, but the country that the countries which emerge the strongest will be those that can manage their own laws and affairs to suit their own circumstances. So again, we can see that uh, the sooner Britain gets out, because of all the problems which are being added to by the virus, uh, she'll be in a better position. At their earlier budget meeting, they held one in the end of February, um, to try and sort out the budget for the next seven years and the account was that uh, nobody wanted to put any extra money in um, and so with the UK's withdrawal that, that was going to leave a 75 billion pound hole in their budget so they got to replace Britain's contributions this was of course uh, back in February before the virus was having causing shutdown um, and they just had to terminate the meeting after a couple of days um, they were so deeply divided uh, they couldn't come up with a solution so this is something which is still hanging over the EU how are we going to get more money especially now uh, the countries are, are bankrupted through the shutdown from coronavirus so I wouldn't like to be in the EU's shoes at the moment. So, with little progress, uh, you know, with the EU making it clear that they are not going to be very flexible, then I think, and hopefully now Boris Johnson today has come back um, to work, 
um, but she'll begin to look more to America and Australia and New Zealand and Israel uh, and get agreements going with these countries. Talks are, are continuing with these countries, but I think uh, greater emphasis will now be placed upon them um, as Britain gives up on finding a deal with the EU. One of the things that was promised in the election was setting up free ports in this country where goods could be imported without any tariffs. Uh, again, this is something which needs pushing forward because it will create jobs and that's what's going to pull Britain out of the recession that threatens the whole of the world as a result of the virus affecting the economy. So that's a matter which uh, I haven't read anything about recently but will need uh, attention fairly soon. And I think there'll have to be quite an overhaul on the bureaucratic uh, NHS and uh, Public Health England. It's shown that centralisation doesn't work. It takes away the flexibility and initiatives that uh, used to be when uh, each hospital was uh, under regional control and each hospital had a matron and she was the one that decided what happened. Centralisation has only increased bureaucracy and taken away the ability to think and act uh, quickly. So I think that we're going to see some uh, revision there, hopefully for the better. And of course there will be quite a strong move to bring a lot of manufacturing jobs back to Britain. Uh, Britain can't rely on countries like China uh, anymore, so that again will have quite an effect. And she, I think, will spend the next few months honing preparations for just how we're going to deal with a no-deal uh, Brexit at the end of the year. So let's turn to Europe, but before we do that, I just want to have a few words on the coronavirus, just for your education. We have quizzes and that, it's useful bits of information. Why is it called coronavirus? Well, it's because the virus itself has these little spiky things which look like a, a crown, and the Latin for crown is corona. And most of you of my generation and older will remember the corona man. Uh, and the emblem that they have of, of, of six, seven bottles uh, of Corona arranged to look like a crown. So that's why it's called coronavirus. Now, the technical uh, term for the disease that it causes is COVID-19. And that's a shorthand for coronavirus V for virus, um, oh, it should be VI, I should have uh, underlined the I, sorry. Uh, so the CO is from the corona, the VI is from the virus, the D, the D is for disease, and the 19 is the year when it was discovered on the 31st of December 2019. So that's the, the 19 bit. So that's what's... Um, the disease is that one gets when one catches it. And the actual virus itself 
is called SARS-CoV-2. And again, that's shorthand for severe acute respiratory syndrome. So that's the SARS bit. Uh, CO for coronavirus, V for virus. Uh, and this is the second one, the, the first SARS-CoV-1. Uh, you probably remember back um, 18 years ago, 20, 2002 and three. Again, it originated in China. Um, it caused about 774 deaths and did spread worldwide. Um, uh, and those that caught it um, have a, was a very high death rate, but it just suddenly disappeared and it's not been seen again in that form. This is a mutated form, so it's, this is COV-2 as opposed to COV-1. Right, so let's look at Europe and the effect of the virus has been to show how disunited Europe is we know that's not to be the case. Europe has to be united. And so I think this is going to be a big impetus uh, to draw Europe together uh, so that they are united. Um, there was no central leadership in dealing with the virus. Every country had to do what it thought was best for itself. Um, and so this showed the weakness. Uh, the EU was supposed to be something which was a unity, but it showed its disunity. And countries like Italy, which were badly hit, uh, they had very little help, did they, from the EU. They appealed for masks and things like that. And Germany and others who had got equipment said, no, we need it ourselves, you're on your own. Uh, and we remember that uh, who stepped in to help Italy and Greece? Uh, it was Russia and China. Uh, it was a wonderful PR for them. As uh, Mr. Putin, after a chat with the Italian Prime Minister, sent, uh, oh, I think, about half a dozen these huge transporter planes filled with lorries. Um, in the medical supplies and medical equipment um, and uh, they had these banners on the front um, which had a, a Russian heart and an Italian heart and a message from Russia with love. So that was Putin's response and China likewise. They sent supplies into these countries uh, showing up the weakness of the EU that what the EU couldn't do well they could do um, and uh, Italy felt and still continues to feel very shabbily treated by the EU but uh, this was an interesting article about what Russia had done uh, and we know, of course, that uh, Russia and Europe have got to work together uh, and the EU, especially under Merkel, have been uh, very often holding Russia at arm's length and that's all got to change. So this uh, is uh, good foreign policy PR showing Russia as a force for good, said uh, the foreign, uh, this is an, an, an analyst in Moscow. Uh, like China. Putin can now say 
his regime is on the side of good and is effective because one person can make decisions quickly without having to pay attention to the opinion of the population. So he's sending disinfection trucks and a uh, hundred experts uh, into the heart of the EU to take control in Italy. Very crafty move. Um, and just the end of the quote, um, medical aid will give us a chance in relations with Italy to hint gently about the need to repay the favour and block the extension of EU sanctions in June. It's also important to point out the aid is going along military lines, which shows how helpless NATO is. So uh, what, what Russia was emphasising is the EU have failed to help its members and NATO has failed to help its members. Uh, we're doing the job for you. So when you come in June time to vote whether the extensions on the sanctions should be extended on Russia, well, think what we did. Uh, put in a good word for us. So we shall see. Uh, it's interesting to see how Mrs Merkel's authority is slipping. Uh, she has to stand down at the very latest uh, next year when they have uh, major elections. She has said she's not going to stand again as Chancellor. The lady that uh, was uh, appointed, uh, her protégé, uh, known as AKK, which got a long, very long name. Um, she proved a disaster. She has stood down from being the, she took over as CDU leader, but she's resigned from that and says she's not going to stand in the elections in 2021. She is uh, the, now the German um, defence minister. So, one of the persons that is being tipped to be the leader is this Marcus Soda, is the uh, president of the state of Bavaria, which is one of the main German states. He's handled the COVID um, very well uh, in there. Apologies for the spelling, I've put an R in. Um, COVID. Um, and he's likely to be one of those that. Uh, could stand a good chance of being elected to take over from Mrs Merkel. Uh, we just have to wait and see, but he is, like Mrs Merkel, is a strong president. He recently organised 200 of the so-called Christian churches in Germany to unite for a day of prayer against the virus. And he is very well liked, and as I say, he has done a very good job so far of handling the crisis. So, it could be somebody who would be a strong leader and has got religious beliefs. He's quite keen on the uniting of Roman Catholics and Protestants working together. So uh, he could play a role. We shall see. And I expect the end result of the virus will be a Europe which binds itself closer together learns from the mistakes it's made uh, and moves more strongly towards this United States of Europe, which we know from scriptures must be the case. And we have in Austria um, their Chancellor, uh, Sebastian Kurz, this young man, 32, 33, 
um, even 34, he was born in uh, 86. Um, he is a very strongly Roman Catholic, quite openly uses his religion to guide him, works very closely with the um, Roman Catholic uh, Archbishop in Austria, a man who's being tipped as the next successor to the Pope. And men like Kurtz, uh, working with uh, other leaders, could um, get Europe coming back together again, binding themselves around the church. Uh, and in France, we have Macron chafing at the lead, wanting to exercise more authority and leadership, uh, but fed up with Mrs. Merkel's uh, failure to be a leader. And so there's another person. Um, and behind the scenes, the Pope is working very hard, as we shall see in a moment. Uh, to get Europe back to its Christian roots. But there is another person we should keep an eye on, and that's Hungary. Now, Hungary was um, very much part of the Holy Roman Empire in the past. Um, Victor Orban uh, is the Prime Minister of Hungary, um, very strongly uh, religious. Uh, and very much rules by decree. Uh, there have been quite a few protests in the EU of his undemocratic um, methods, but uh, he is very much against uh, mass immigration because he's saying that's what is diluting Christian Europe by bringing all these Muslims in. So he very much wants to have Christian Europe as a a Christian country and recognise Christianity at its roots. So it's against uh, migration. Um, in 2018, um, he asked that uh, crosses should be hung in all the Bavarian state buildings. So again, um, no, I'm sorry, that's um, that, that's the uh, chappie from. Uh, Bavaria. Um, oh, what was you going back a few slides? But no, that, that was a Bavarian. My notes is, I copied a slide and the notes uh, followed through. Um, so that's uh, ignore that remark. So yes, Hungary was at the heart of the Holy Roman Empire. So expect to see big changes as with new elections in Germany and these other. Uh, leaders assert their power uh, and they are united in this wish to take Europe back to its Christian roots. Now last year came out uh, a book, I've, I've got it, uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but um, it came last week. Uh, it's called The 20th Century Crusade, The Vatican's Battle to Remake Christian Europe. And it's a fascinating book to show how for the past hundred years um, Rome has been working to make uh, bring Europe back to its Christian roots. And we know from scripture that that is going to succeed. There's going to be a beast power which is going to be uh, a European beast working with the false prophets uh, just as they did in time past under the Holy Roman Empire where we had uh, an emperor and a Pope, 
we shall probably have a, a similar situation uh, in the future. Um, we know from the past that one of the things that really unites countries together is uh, war. Um, the COVID battle is uh, a very real war, though we can't see the virus. Um, it is a very deadly battle that is being fought out. So this is the uh, just a few days ago, um, Pope at one of the masses he was holding, may Europe be united in the dream of the founding fathers. And we know the founding fathers were all strongly Roman Catholic and were looking for a Europe which had the church at the heart of it. Um, that didn't succeed at that time, but now in these new circumstances, where you need something which will bind all, all the various factions of Europe together. The church is putting itself forward, especially as this Pope is very keen on an ecumenical viewpoint, and not insisting on doctrine anymore, but saying, you know, let's reach out to everybody who's reaching out to the Protestants and to the Muslims and to the Jews. Uh, wanting a universal church. Uh, great changes are taking place behind the scenes in the Roman Catholic Church to make it more appealing that it might act as a, a binding power. And so I put here, um, as uh, this is a quotation from this Vatican News, uh, as Europe faces its most difficult period since the aftermath of the Second World War, Returning to the origins of the European project can help it find a new impetus for the old continent. It is the dream of the founding fathers. Pope Francis has called this concrete dream solidarity. That's what they got to get back to, solidarity. And religion will be that binding power, as it was under the Holy Roman Empire. And one of the other interesting things, side effects of this virus, um, is that it's stoking anti-Semitism, as happened in the past, in the time of the Great Plagues, the Black Plague in this country, in Europe, the Jews were blamed because they practiced washing of hands, so they didn't get infected so much, they were blamed uh, for the introduction of this virus and many Jewish communities in Europe were uh, exterminated, terrible time. And so the coronavirus is stirring anti-Semitism around the world, fueled by the centuries old lies that Jews are spreading infection, researchers said on Monday. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been a significant rise in accusations that Jews as individuals and as a collective are behind the spread of the virus and are directly profiting from it. So the interesting effect of that is that it's driving Jews to think about going back to Israel. I've been impressed on how Mr. Nahu has handled the situation uh, in Israel and are seeing that it's a uh, much safer place to go back to. And so they're now talking about 600,000 Jews are now actively looking to returning to Israel. Now, obviously, that's normally a long process. 
I've got to sell everything in their homeland and then move. So uh, they're expecting at least 100,000 Israelis and Jews from around the world uh, to arrive uh, during this, in this coming year. So that would be an interesting impetus to drive the Jews back to their land. Another effect will be an increasing rift between the US and the EU. As America puts America first, um, then that will, not, will increase the rift. We know there's not, not much love lost between Europe and uh, Mr. Trump at the moment, uh, and things are only going to get worse. And Brexit will also speed up because Britain, in Europe's eyes, is associated with America. And as Britain leaves the EU, then a pro-American voice is being lost. And so the separation between them will grow even more. And again, you know, that's what we've been looking for. That's what scripture leads us to understand. There are two camps. The camp of Europe and Russia and other nations who are against Israel. And there is a camp of Britain and America and Commonwealth countries who are for Israel. And so this division is going to increasingly um, be uh, apparent in the coming months. And obviously there's going to be a growing rift between the US and China. Um, no longer will America and probably Britain too uh, be so dependent on cheap goods from China. And the move will be to bring back manufacturing back to home countries. So again, you know, we, we see these strands which are um, bringing us to see the great changes which are, are coming. So expect Europe to more realign with Russia. Again, this is what scripture tells us. There are two legs on Daniel's image that come against Israel, an eastern leg, a Russian leg, a western leg, a European leg, united together, one head, and the papacy leading them. So we've got to expect that it will come together more. And you know, increasingly there are voices in Europe, this was uh, EU's top diplomat says Brussels needs to improve its relations with Russia and Turkey. And another one, um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Russia and China will exploit uh, any gaps in the EU markets. If Britain leaves, they will try and fill the gap, as it were. You know how China is really keen on this uh, strategy of building connections um, between China and the rest of the world and is very active in uh, Italy. And this is one of the reasons why Italy was so badly hit with the virus was because there are so many um, Chinese construction workers working on major projects in Italy as indeed they are in Iran, and that's why Iran was so badly hit, because there were so many Chinese workers who brought the virus in. So 
great changes. And uh, what's interesting too is how Russia is increasingly militarizing uh, and it gives Europe no uh, option but to join forces. The more weaponry that Russia has, the less able Europe will be to stand against her. So if you can't beat them, then you join them. And there was a fascinating cartoon on the 19th of March in the National Review showing the Russian bear uh, nibbling away at Europe. Um, and the title was Vladimir Putin's Encirclement of Europe. So that was something which grabbed my uh, eyes, uh, seeing such a cartoon and such a, a headline. And so just a few extracts from it. Russia has managed to extend its reach along a line, a front from the Baltic to the Mediterranean and is projecting power to the Arctic and the Atlantic. Europe is being encircled by Russia. Along Europe's eastern frontier from the Baltic to the Black Sea, Russia has a sizable military presence and has demonstrated its willingness to invade and control territories, e.g. South Ossetia and Georgia, Crimea and eastern Ukraine. It has entrenched itself in Syria in order to buttress Assad, returning to a position of influence in the Middle East that it has not held since the late 1970s. It has developed a partnership of sorts with Erdogan's Turkey, convincing it to buy S-400 air defence systems and thereby making that country even less reliable US ally. It has built or upgraded seven military bases in the Arctic region, gaining control of one of the key shipping arteries between Europe and Asia, estimated to be 40% faster than shipping through the Suez Canal. This is going through the north, what used to be uh, ice flows, but they now have got this passageway and it's much quicker for goods to get from Europe and Asia via the north of Russia than going through the Suez Canal. In a surprising show of force in late 2019, Russia served 10 submarines into the North Atlantic, demonstrating a capability that has been dormant since the late Cold War. Over the past few years, however, Russia's interventions in these regions have imparted a geopolitical cohesion to what previously had been separate zones of instability. Russia is now a central player along the length of this um, volatile frontier. And then it just concluded that Europe's European security is increasingly at the mercy of Russia, and not just along the tense but geographically limited central European frontier, but historically separated the core of Europe from Moscow's westward imperial aspirations. This is an enormously, enormous success for Moscow. So before you just had these few states which separated Russia from Europe. Now Russia has crept around the north, has crept around the south, and so Russia's power encircles Europe.
And so really Europe has no option but to go with the flow, join with Europe. The Pope will work hard with that because it will unite the Russian Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches together. And that's what he wants. Another byproduct of the virus has been the plunge in uh, oil prices, fuel prices. Because the world is in lockdown, a lot of industry is not working, people aren't travelling, so the demand for oil has shrunk drastically. And so the world markets are absolutely flooded. You know, firms are buying up uh, big tanker ships in order just to store the oil which is flowing from the wells. And it's coincided with a spat between Russia and the Saudi. Russia uh, and the Saudi have been at loggerheads about the volumes to be uh, fetched out of the ground and whether there should be drastic cuts to try and push the prices up. Well, now the Saudis were wanting to hammer the uh, Americans who with their shale oil have become a major oil player but extracting oil from shale is rather expensive so what uh, Saudi's plan was if we up our um, exports of oil that will bring the prices down and that will bankrupt the American firms well that's just coincided with the COVID, so that the prices of oil are absolutely plummeted. In fact, in one day, the suppliers were actually paying people to take their oil away. Now, it didn't last for long, but you know, from a $60 a barrel, uh, it is down to a level of about, in the worst case, it got down to about 18. It's just crept up to about 22 at the moment. So, that's put a lot of uh, US shale producers under severe strain. Uh, one has already gone bankrupt. But it's had quite a profound effect. It's uh, affected Russia. Russia has had to devalue in order to ease the pain of the low prices. Um, Saudi's plans for life after oil have been taken for severe knock. So it's the motorists um, and people who use oil for heating their houses that are making the most of these prices, which we haven't seen for years and years and years. So finally, let's just turn to Israel. Um, and uh, I think that, again, Israel will be hit by these low prices because the gas which they are extracting from the Mediterranean is from deep well water so that's not cheap to get out it's not like Saudi um, where it's close to the surface so um, it will affect uh, Israel's economy if uh, gas prices uh, also fall to similar levels to the oil prices we wait and see what happens on that score but it probably will put a plan an end to the plan to build this gas pipeline from Israel, linking up uh, Israel and Cyprus to Greece and onto Europe. I think at these low prices, nobody's going to put money into their pockets. 
And again, you know, it will have this effect separating Israel from Europe. Um, and also, because of the virus, it has resulted in Israel now having a government. They were just on the brink of saying we've got to have a fourth election in 18 months when um, a coalition government was put together. Now, um, Nena, who has handled the virus very well in Israel, um, people are looking from around the world at how Israel is doing things. And of course, Israel is very good at uh, research on finding an um, antidote to the virus. Britain is working very hard with Israel with joint experiments. But he's done a very good job. And so the Israeli people, although Netanyahu wasn't offered the chance of making a government, it was given to the Blue and White Party. Um, as the leader and he couldn't uh, get a, a, a government together and then split the blue and white party by saying I'm going to work with Netanyahu. Um, he wanted very strong terms on his uh, suiting what he wanted and Netanyahu held out and uh, in the end um, things uh, didn't happen that way and Netanyahu had the upper hand. So at the moment the agreement is that after 18 months uh, Netanyahu stands down and hands over to Gantz. But uh, that obviously remains to be seen. Gantz hasn't yet shown what kind of uh, a politician he's going to be. He hasn't had uh, any experience. And so we have this situation where now, uh, in this coalition government, um, with a, a split blue and white um, joining that government and others refusing to have anything to do with it, it's led to Netanyahu leading a government which has uh, 72 out of the 120 seats. So the opposition has 48 seats and he has 72 seats. Now, I tried to find, I think this is probably one of the biggest majorities that Israel has had for many a year. Normally, it's just a knife edge, you know, 61 seats, 62 seats. Have 72 seats, it's a bit like what's happened in Britain um, with the majority that the Conservatives now have. And of course, what they're going to press ahead with is the annexation of the West Bank settlements say that they are now part of Israel. This is what the, Mr. Trump has agreed, that Israel has the right to do that. Uh, the world says no, uh, you don't, and Britain is one of those countries that opposes the annexation of the West Bank. But as uh, Israel says, you know, we, we took this uh, territory, uh, we control it, there never has been a Palestinian state, there has never existed one, so the Palestinians have never lost a state, um, never did belong to the Palestinians. And we know from scripture, Ezekiel 38 makes it clear that Israel is dwelling on the mountains of Israel. And so that's the mountains of Israel, of the, what we today will call part of the West Bank and that central spine which runs down Israel. So we would expect to see 
Israel there. And that's what they're determined to do. He has the majority now to carry through those steps, which will ensure that Israel has control over that area and will put paid to any plans that Palestinians have of a state of their own. But then they have been offered territory and have always refused it. They don't want a state because uh, they don't really want power. They just want to be uh, in a position and to cause problems for Israel. So again, expect great changes in what happens in Israel and the relationship with the Palestinians and maybe the time of peace and safety that we read on in Ezekiel 38 is shortly to come to pass. So brothers and sisters, um, we've seen so much happening and things being speeded up because of this coronavirus. So God is not only warning nations to think and warning individuals that this is part of his judgments and they're only going to get worse like birth pangs until the Lord Jesus comes back. So it's a wake-up call for our friends and our young people uh, that time is not on their side. The coming of the Lord Jesus is soon and we've got to do something about it. It's also bringing about these great changes which we've been expecting and waiting for. And so how are we going to respond to these signs from God? This virus isn't a a chance random thing. It will change uh, people's situations for good or for ill and have a profound effect on the world of politics in ways which we can only just begin to uh, appreciate but we'll see in hindsight, God willing, the growing rift between uh, America and Europe will continue to grow. And Britain will separate herself off from Europe and link up with the Commonwealth countries and with America. These will all be driven by what is happening. Um, we shall see Europe coming together under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. And so, brothers and sisters, these things must make us rejoice, in spite of the difficulties that we face and troubles and the isolation Yet in our hearts we know that the Lord God is in control. Things don't happen by chance. They're all under his plan and purpose. And we're so privileged to be able to see these last days of the times of the Gentiles. And we pray for that coming when Israel will be exalted again and God's kingdom established in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus as king and in his mercy we will be with him as the kings and priests of that coming age, to guide the nations into the right ways, to educate them to the ways of truth and righteousness. And the earth will be the paradise that God intended. May that day come soon. Thank you.